Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to over there. I'm the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News in lovely, beautiful, hot, stormy Denver, Colorado, Jason Luber. I'm cigar-smoking, car-driving, <laughs> pedestrian-hating, cyclist-smoking uh, guy, Joseph Peters. That was a lot of weird things in there. Yeah. Uh, are you sure? No. Did you see the video of the guy on the electric scooter riding down the interstate? I sure did, man. I, Dallas, of all places. You have to be in a place where you can, where everybody is going 25 miles per hour to be able to ride an electric scooter <laughs> on the highway. This man was in the right circumstances, and I'll tell you what, he was a better driver than some of the other people on the road that night. That's an on-purpose. That is not a, oh, I just found myself on an interstate. That is a, you have to want to get on the ramp and get up on the interstate and then drive on. And he was in the left lane. So I don't know how he goes from the right lane where the ramp usually is. Because it's usually – now, Now there aren't everywhere the ramps go from the right lane and then onto the highway. They can come from the left occasionally. Yes. I don't know if that's the case for this guy. I don't think so because there were several exit signs in the video that were all going to the right. And then he crossed from the left lane all the way over to the right, and that's where the video ended. And uh, it was somebody's dash cam, a robe dash, dash cam, just like I have. Yep. Got to check that Jason Luber uh, Traffic Guy Facebook page. I think you oh. got that video posted, right? Uh, yes, I will have it posted. Well, you can't you can't scrape it and post it. You have to uh, post the YouTube because it's. Uh, I think he sold it to Storyful. He did sell it to Storyful. That brilliant, brilliant gentleman. Yes, he did. Well, anyway, uh, I keep putting this number out for calls, and I and I still don't have any calls to put on the podcast. So. I am now down to begging for anyone just to dial this number, 303-832-0217. I know there's a lot of people out there that have phones, and there's a lot of people that listen and download to the, the, this show every, every week and, and, and a lot of people a month. So one of you people, just one of you, I mean, that's really, we could, we could get 0.1% and we'd still have a lot of people making this phone call, 303-832-0217. I just tried it. It immediately goes right to the voicemail message. Then boom, you leave a message. It's that simple. I mean, at this point, I wouldn't mind somebody just breathing heavy into the phone and then hanging up. I mean, you can, you talk, can do that. You yeah. can talk sexy to us. You can just r- ramble on about whatever. That's all we're doing. I mean, I don't care what. I mean, talk about Area 51. Um, 832-0217 with that 303 area code. Um, anyway, just call it, please. Anyway. So today on the show, we have a really special guest. We're going to have Hank Scott. Hank is the founder and CEO of Molon Labe Seating. It's an odd name. I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'll ask Hank if I'm doing that right. It's a company that has developed a configuration of airline seats where the middle seat is offset, thus making it more comfortable. That's what they say. This man says he will make you love the middle seat. It's a really interesting idea. And what you have to picture is that the seat is, is at a different level, so it's not just straight all the way across for the three seats. And it's actually offset a little bit backwards, I think. Um, and so that is what allows you to get some elbow room and some different, and it, it's a pretty interesting concept. And so uh, Hank will explain, obviously he created the seat. He designed the seat. He came up with the idea for the seat. So he should be able, I would think to easily tell us our listening audience, how the seat works. And this will be a special treat for our listeners from down under. Cause Hank originally from Australia. 
Exactly. Yep. And we love the Australian accent. It, yes, we do. We love it. We haven't talked to anybody in Australia yet. We have the ability with our WhatsApp app. Yep. Because um, yep. we've gone over the pond and we've we've spoken to somebody there in England. Um, we've gone to Canada. So we are international. We're downloaded huge in Spain. If somebody in Spain wants to call 303-832-0217, can't use the WhatsApp app, I don't believe, but you can still call the number and leave a, a message in Spanish. And I want to hear from a couple of our Asian listeners, too, because I know you're out there, and I, I love hearing about the ways that traffic is so much different in Asian countries from the way we experience it here in America. Exactly, and we'll play you right here on the show. So Hank will be coming up in just a bit when he gives us a call. So imagine you're driving without a license. You have a sleeping 14-month-old child in the back seat, in a car seat, and your friend with you, who's in the passenger seat, is a wanted man by police. You run a red light in front of cops. What do you do? Joseph? Uh, the answer is D. I don't run the red light in the first place. Well, if you're 20-year-old Samaj Thomas from Oklahoma City, you speed off. Oh, God. Which is the wrong answer. He went on the run. Actually, he only ran around the block a couple of times, and then he decided to stop for the police. Thankfully, the baby was not hurt. And according to a police report, Thomas told officers that he didn't stop because he doesn't have a driver's license. That is not a reason to run from police. You were going to arrest me, so I ran away. Mr. Thomas was arrested. And he was booked in the Oklahoma County Jail. His passenger, who was a wanted man, was never caught. Swerve. (laughs) So maybe that's what was going on. Passenger's like, dude, I can't go to jail again. You got to get out of here. And so he ran around the block a couple of times. You know, best friend gets out, runs away. And then dude with the car and the baby, um, well... In this cold, stony, lonesome. Listen, some shoddy police work. You got you to bring in all three of them, man. I want charges for the wanted man. I want charges for the driver. I want charges for the 14-month-old. Uh, on what? I don't know yet. <laughs> Excessive drooling? <laughs> so we talked. I just mentioned Area 51, and we've talked about Area 51 here on the show. We've talked about those airplanes that go from McCarran secretly over to Area 51, taking the um, all those workers out there secretly. To Area 51. We probably shouldn't be talking about all those things, but we do it anyway for you, the listeners. Well, and also because now we're going to have the government listening to the podcast, which is actually helping us out and our downloads. Um, because, <laughs> right? Yes. Don't you think? Yes. I've driven around Area 51. I've driven around the whole thing. Around it literally, not around the inside of it, but no, no, around no, no. the around, exterior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> around, the exteri- around the highways, the legal highways around Area 51. I even stopped at the little Ailey Inn. Um, that's that Good spot. work, man. It's on the east side of Area 51, um, and I've stopped there, and I had lunch at a hamburger. I still have a shot glass from the Alien. It, nice. It's great. It's really, Maybe I should post that. I think you should. So I'm sure at this point you've heard about the Facebook event called Storm Area 51. They can't stop us all. Yes, I'm interested. I'm not going. I'm not a no, but I'm interested. I am too. Over a million people now are wanting to rush into Area 51. They, they would go to the Alien Visitor Center, which is different than the Alien, which I understand now is actually they have rooms there at the Alien, and they're sold out. They only have like a dozen rooms or something, but I think they're sold out now. But the Alien Visitor Center is on the west side of the... It's, it's closer to Pahrump 
where Art Bell, where, you know, the late great Art Bell was from. Uh, cat houses and that sort of thing, yep. I think, is over there. Yep. So, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people say they're going to this thing and they are going to rush the base. Um, I, I don't think that's a good idea for them to do that. The, the guy who started this thing said that it was a joke. Ha, he, ha, ha. He joke. would say that. He would say that. Listen, the, the title of the group is accurate. They can't stop us all. No. They can't. They can't. But if you think about this, even though the Air Force has assured the public that security will be increased when this happens on September 20th, uh, and that it's really not a good idea to storm the base because they can and have used deadly force <laughs> when stopping people coming onto Area 51, really, when you get there, let's just say for the argument's sake of this whole thing, you have a group of people. 100,000 people rushing onto the base. They couldn't shoot everybody. Well, They're not going to drop bombs on everybody, right? So let's say half, 50,000 people. after because it's And it's not just like going 100 yards. I mean, you're going a long way, and they probably will stop everybody. However, let's say... <laughs> let, let's say... Do you think they will? Do you 20 think? of these people from 100,000, 20 really you know, eager folk uh, made it over to the base. And to some buildings, and they could run around and get into buildings. At that point, don't you think all the doors are locked? Can I ask you an honest question? This is an honest question. Using, yes. using your 100,000 Americans figure, on one side you have 100,000 average Americans, 5 out of 10s, trying to storm Area 51. Yes. On the other side, you have 3,000 military commandos whose only job is to not let any of those people through the front door. Yeah. Who wins? The commandos. They win. They wipe out all 100,000. Well, I'm not going to say that they're going to shoot them all, but they might have to shoot a few to get the others to stop. I agree. I mean, seriously. I don't, e I don't even know that you have to shoot anybody. I think you could win this fight purely with tear gas. You, could, you have tear gas. You could shoot into the air. You could shoot into the ground. You could do like the A team and never hit anybody if you're shooting at somebody with a, you know, you know what's really going to happen? Gun? They're going to step through the Area 51 force field and they'll never remember what they were there for, and they're going to turn around. Oh, and walk just away. like on Men in Black, yep. where they hit that thing and it just makes their mind go away. Exactly. Back to the idea that somebody, let's say at least one guy, gets up to one of the buildings, somehow gets into a locked door without, you know, with the key, and then what? Let's say you get to the room where the aliens are. Then what? Then what are you doing? Are you just taking pictures? Are you grabbing the alien? Are you grabbing and then you're trying to run all the way back out? I mean, there's one thing to try to boom rush them and get in. It's not we're not going to a concert here. We are trying to rush in and then grab something there and then get back out, right? And let's say you did get back out and you're at the alien set and then you're holding it like a football? I mean, how does that work? I need answers for this. That's the thing people don't think all the way through. There's no ultra marathoner signing up for this, man. There's not a single person who is attending this that has the sort of like cardiovascular endurance to actually storm anything, first yeah. of all, but specifically Area 51, get to anywhere of significance, get anything of significance, and then run back. That's the thing. It's uh, How are you going to get something, at least some proof, an alien, a whatever, a key card from somebody, and then run all the way back out? That's a, It's a long way. You don't have, unless you're going to commandeer one of their Jeeps 
or one of their alien. Maybe that's it. You get there, you 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 partner with the alien, and then you get into their. You let him out of his alien jail there at Area Fifty One. Get into his craft because somehow you've telepathically <laughs> communicated with this beast, and and then they then you guys fly out, and then boom, off you go. Right. We need to move on. We got to move on. Are you sure? Yeah, we got to move on. <laughs> Honestly, what I think is going to happen here, you're going to have a bunch of people that are going to show up to this thing. It's going to fizzle out, and it's going to turn into Burning Man 2, the UFO edition. Yep. With no UFO. With no UFO, but it's going to be a UFO uh, symposium, and you're going to have speakers, and you're going to have bands, and you're going to have beer, and you're going to have just basically a big UFO gathering party. Um, every September 20th now. Can't wait. There you go. That's what it's going to be. Rating or no rating. <laughs> so it's a bad time to be a Kiwi, apparently. True. First, New Zealand lost the Cricket World Cup to England. I was really into the Cricket World Cup, by the way. And now Wales has taken the title of having the world's steepest street away from them. Oh. A street in North Wales has been declared the steepest street in the world. Residents in Harlech, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, because, I think you nailed it. Because <laughs> it is a Welsh name. They're celebrating at the Guinness World Records verified the gradient of Ford Ben Lech at 37.45%. That's the name of the street. I actually listened to a CNN report about the name of the street, and I believe that's how they pronounce it. Ford Ben Lech. Oh, good. I could not do Welsh very good. Uh, the title for World's Steepest Street had been held by Baldwin Street in Dundin, New Zealand, with a gradient of 35%. Now, the person who went to the Guinness World Records to make the change said, I feel sorry for the New Zealanders, but steeper is steeper. <laughs> there was no, there was no, uh, there was no information in the report whether the middle finger was also extended. Without a doubt. Also... Seriously, man, who, do you walk up this street? Do you run up this street? Do you drive up this street? A 35% grade is insane. Actually, the, the problem is that most of the people live at the bottom of that hill, but the pharmacist and the post office are at the top. Oh, my God. So that's the problem. Oh, my God. So if you're sick or you want to mail something, <laughs> you have to go... To the top of the street. Feel the burn, baby. Feel the burn. They already put up banners around the town celebrating the new official status. And the town hopes the new street designation is going to become a tourist attraction. Tourists regularly visit the previous record holder, Baldwin Street, there in New Zealand. Residents on the New Zealand Street had to cope with a lot of tourists, especially from cruise ships at the nearby harbor. So you be careful of what you wish for. Because if you want more tourists and probably the tourist money, you're going to have to also deal with the tourists and them eating and pooping and being and doing touristy kind of things. Now, there is someone, though, separately, who wants to have a street in San Francisco looked at now as the world's steepest street. Bradford Street above Tompkins Street south of downtown. If you're in San Francisco, let us know if you've been on this street. Unofficially, a 41% grade, which would easily make it the world's steepest street. There's also claims that 
Romolo Street between Vallejo and Fresno on the north side of downtown San Francisco is a 37.5% grade, which also would be more than Ford Penlach. It seems to me we got a, a healthy debate here, and I think Guinness needs to settle this. Yeah, because in fact, this guy says there are at least 10 streets in San Francisco with a steepness grade of over 30%. Wow. The famous Windy Street, Lombard Street yep. in San Francisco, that's only about 27%. I've been on that street. It is windy. It's not super steep, but I've been on that street. Uh, have you ever been to San Francisco? I've not been to San Francisco. But I'm ready for this debate. The steepest city, steepest street in America. It's time for us to settle this as a podcast. Well, I, I think what we should do is, not only is it the steepest street in America, it's the steepest street in the world, and we, as as America, like to have all the titles of everything, good and bad and indifferent. So I, I'm, I'm fully supporting this, this unidentified person to make Tompkins Street, on the south side of downtown San Francisco, the world's steepest street at 41%. It's pretty much universally acknowledged that the middle seat on an airplane is one place you really don't want to sit in for a long time. Now, you're awkwardly sandwiched in there between a couple of people. You're fighting for elbow room. A big guy like me, it's really not that comfortable. You have to ask the person in the aisle to move out so you can get out if you have to go to the bathroom or you know just stretch your legs. It really can be the bane of the entire flying experience for most passengers. Well, there's a company out there. Right here in Colorado, in fact, that is promoting their latest design that might change all of that and make people want to sit in the middle seat. Joining us to talk about all of this on the show is Hank Scott. Hank is a 25-year aviation veteran, a leader. He's a former Australian Navy test flight instructor, previous avionics and weapons system flight tester for Lockheed Martin, as well as an engineering instructor at the University of Colorado. He's also the founder and CEO of Molan Labe Seating. Hank, thanks for joining us here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. <laughs> How you doing, guys? First, did I get the pronunciation of the company right? You know, I'm not 100% sure. It keeps changing, but it, it's Latin, <laughs> and I've had, uh, I've had some priests tell me one way to say it. I've had some uh, other people tell me different ways. I believe it's Molan Labe, but it's translation kind of means come and get them which i thought was a good marketing tool but i think the second amendment folks beat me to it so um <laughs> they kind of got me there <laughs> how'd you come up with the name i so i used to teach uh, some military history and it's a famous quote in military circles and it's back from the movie 300 and when i came up with the company name i was actually watching that movie and i'm like oh here comes the classic phrase molon lave and i thought oh, i might you know i know what it meant it meant come and get them so i thought Come and get my seats. Well, so, uh, <laughs> well, there you go. I guess uh, movies, I think, are the inspiration of a lot of different names. So I'll give you yeah, that. Yeah, right. All right. Yeah. So before we get into really what this seat looks like and why it's such a revolutionary design change, they say that necessity is the mother of invention. So did you or, or one of your seat designers get caught in a middle seat one too many times and you just had to do something about it? Yeah, I was working for a big aerospace company and traveling a lot, and uh, I just I got frustrated at, at everything. And I'd, I'd flown in the Navy for about 15 years back in Australia, and one of the things that happens when you fly military aircraft is you get really good at bitching about the design of the cockpit <laughs> right. and the seats. And So I was already good at it, and uh, well, I just took that, uh, that sort of bitchiness and carried it into uh, a solution. 
When you mm-hmm. first came up with this idea, what was really the first thought that popped into your head that thought, yep, this is, this is it. This is the way to, to make this work. Um, well, uh, the seat that we're talking about was actually an accident. Um, what I originally wanted to do, I wanted to design a way to get on and off the plane faster by making the aisle wider. And so we designed a, a seat that we call the side slip seat, which is uh, it's right on the heels of this seat. It's almost certified. It's got a, it's got a few more months to go. But um, basically, the side slip seat required, uh, to, in order to allow the aisle seats to slide sideways over the top of the middle seats, just during passenger loading and unloading, um, we needed to have a staggered layout. And so we designed the staggered layout, we designed the sliding seat, and then when we built a prototype, we sat in it and we thought, hey, wait a second, um, this is, this is kind of cool. So it was like a, an accidental byproduct of wanting to make the aisle wider, we ended up with this staggered layout. And part of the staggered layout meant that the way the framing is stacked rather than side by side, we had an extra three inches of space. And we decided all three of those extra inches of width should actually go into one seat, and that's the middle seat. So as I understand the a wider aisle, because I've, I've been on, obviously, we've all been on airplanes and we're all trying to get off and you have the three seats right there and everybody's crammed in and, and you're waiting for that one narrow aisle so everybody can just get their stuff and get out. So you're saying that you can really float that uh, aisle seat over top of the middle seat, makes it much wider and then a lot of more people can get out of the plane, but you still have the problem of one small door where everybody has to cram out of there. Yeah, true, true, true. What what the uh, flight attendants call it is spinning, and mainly it's when you're getting on the plane, when you're taking, you, you get to your seat, but then you're standing in the aisle. During that time, everybody's waiting while you take your jacket off, you put your, you get your iPad out, you put your bag away, and while someone's spinning, no one can go past. Well, with our design, people can, and as as the loading process continues, the aisle does get more normal, comes from 42 inches back down to the normal 20, so there is a a lot of diminishing returns, but compared to any other loading process, we've got analysis and we've done tests. Uh, it's so much faster. The problem with that seat is we were trying to sell a seat that had staggered armrests, it had a staggered layout, and it slid. It was too much innovation. And the industry's kind of nervous about new stuff. And so a couple of years ago, we said, look, the staggered layout is a really simple, non-moving, uh, reliable innovation. Let's sell that. And then the sliding component, which these seats look exactly the same in flight, will upsell the sliding component later on. So we went ahead and certified just the staggered layout with no moving parts. All right. So for the benefit of our listening audience, explain as best you can, since they can't see this seat in their head, try to walk them through a picture, if you will, of exactly how it looks, how you get in, and why I would want to sit in that middle seat. Sure, sure. So you take a normal airline seat, uh, three, three, a triple, basically, and you make the aisle and the window seat slightly higher and slightly further forward, and you take the middle seat, make it slightly lower, slightly further back, and there you have the staggered layout. So when I sit next to somebody, I'm not completely adjacent. Now, it's only a couple of inches difference, but if you ever sat next to a big fella and they're basically taking up all your space and your armrest, we're reducing that misery just a little. We're speaking to Hank Scott. He's the founder and CEO of Molan Labe about his revolutionary middle seat design change. So this then would help me, do you think, get in and out of that seat area, especially if I'm sitting in the window seat, a little bit easier? No, no. <laughs> not at all. Um, <laughs> no, getting in and out is just as, just as miserable as it always is, especially in that really tight legroom scenario. 
And this is a slimline suit we're selling. We do have a long-haul version where the airlines usually give you a lot more legroom on long flights. This is a three- to four-hour flight uh, sort of seat. And so the airlines, some of the airlines are really packing people in. So if they're packing people in, I wish I had say over that, but I don't. So all we're really trying to do is once you're in the seat, you get a little bit more space. But when there's only 29 inches of pitch that you might see on, say, Spirit Airlines, you're not getting to the bathroom without both people getting out of the way anyhow, <laughs> no matter what seat you're using. So um, it's it's more about giving you the space once you're in the seat. Uh, when, you, when you talked about how this is something that you're readying to roll out there, have there been any? Is this something where airlines specifically will come to you, or is it going to be more airplane manufacturers, and you won't have necessarily a lot of control over who's actually carrying these seats in their flights? So traditionally, the way it works is uh, airlines replace their seats every five to seven years. And so that will be most of our market. And after we've been flying for a couple of years and supporting whatever airline customers we have, then the Boeings and the Airbuses of the world will say, listen, we like what you're doing. We will now offer your seats when an airline comes to buy a new plane. So it's going to take a couple of years to get to that point. But um, sort of basically both. We're trying to sell to both. Yeah. So will these seats be more comfortable to sit in? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, technology has helped us a lot with our cushion comfort in particular. Um, we did pressure mapping. We did heat mapping. We've chosen uh, one of our favorite cushion at the moment actually does the best uh, what they call heat mapping. And that's where you um, you basically I don't know if you've experienced, but your thighs can get really warm in some of those leather seats. Me personally, that's a pet peeve. So we, we picked a foam that's uh, it's pretty thick. I would say it's a. Uh, a cross between the full old Southwest Airlines seats and uh, something you might see on, say, Delta, um, as opposed to the really thin stuff you see out there. We do have a really thin version if an airline wants it, but we're not promoting it that much. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely more comfortable. But typically, you hear from the airlines, Spirit, Frontier, the lower-cost airlines. I've sat in their seats, and they feel like they're just a thin piece of plastic and a thin uh, little pad there, and, and my backsides hurting after a 20 minute so most of these airlines are worried about uh the weight of these things and the size of these things so how does that play into what the airlines want compared to what i want as a comfortable seat it's always a trade-off but what we've managed to do is our weight is under nine kilograms per passenger which means we're one of the top we're one of the three lightest seats you can get out there so we can go when an airline chooses a seat usually what they do is they bring a bunch of competitor seats into a room and everyone sits in the seats uh we have that at our showroom i actually have a competitor seat there and i'm like all right sit on that seat sit on our seat which one do you want oh by the way we're lighter than them and we're more comfortable so uh it's really uh through the analysis that we've been able to reduce the metal weight the structural analysis that we do digitally allowed us to make the seat very light and then we can throw the extra lightness into the comfort and uh the cushions since you said everything is lighter, your seat is lighter, that I'm sure is attractive to these airlines because lighter stuff in the airplane means you're saving fuel as an airline. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's a big trade-off too. Part, the biggest part of the design process is it has to be strong enough to pass the crash testing, but it has to be light enough to be competitive. And so that takes years to get that right. When we do this analysis and we do all this digital crash testing and our, our partners over there at Wichita State University who do a lot of the digital dynamic analysis for us, they come back and say, uh, you need to add strength here, but you can cut a hole in the metal here and you know, so on and so forth. And um, that's the trade-off, it's a constant trade-off. Let me ask you honestly, Hank, do you think that your innovation is going to convince anybody to take a middle seat over a window seat or an aisle seat? 
I do. I do. In fact, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to the day when I watch that happen. I, uh, what I think will happen, most people think the wider middle seat makes more sense for a big person. I actually think the taller seat makes more sense because you're a little bit further forward. Um, and then the lower seat is more to do with people's height. Because when you look at comfort, one of the big comfort things is when I'm sitting, are my entire thighs and buttocks spread out over the whole seat? Or are, they, are my knees high or low and therefore creating a pressure point? So I, I have a background in ergonomics too. And so when we do this pressure mapping, it's actually a big part of comfort that I think people aren't aware of. So I'm hoping people will pick the height of the seat based on the ergonomic size. So you think that the airlines then would give you a seating, not only the seating chart of you're going to be in seat 27D, but your seat is also going to be this tall and this wide, and you're going to have this much leg room, or you're going to have great uh, armrest room because you are going to be in 27E. I think I'd love it if the airlines could say to their customers on their apps or whatever, if you want to put in your physical dimensions, we'll, we'll offer a seat. We can actually change the foam thickness on the aisle seat. So in reality, there's three separate heights for every triple seat and two separate widths. So you could really, one size doesn't fit all anymore. Interesting. So what kind of planes can these seats go into? Uh, right now, they are designed for Airbus 320s and Boeing 737s. We have to do uh, a couple more tests. When an airline picks it, there's another test we have to do, um, which is specific to that exact layout of that exact aircraft. So we're generically certified by the FAA, but we have to do this extra little bit of testing when they tell us which aircraft. And we're working on a long-haul version, which is the same thing, except it has recline, it has a lot more padding and really big TV screens. So for an average Joe like myself, who doesn't know a whole lot about the process of designing a seat, what's something that nobody ever asks you about, but that, that really gave you a lot of consternation during the process? Uh, I learned something that grossed me out. Um, <laughs> Good, okay. <laughs> so uh, seat cushions made of foam, absorb a lot of uh human <laughs> smells <laughs> liquids and so i didn't realize how long this stuff lasts but some of these airlines are swapping out the foam and washing the covers fairly often a lot uh, like within every year or two uh for some of them um and uh a foam one of the foam companies told us what really <laughs> it was gross <laughs> that sounds gross i mean you, you you probably have good stories about all the grossness yeah, yeah, but the good news is they, um, the new, some of the new covers, the, they clean very well. Like one of our covers, you can get a pen, like just a normal ballpoint pen, and write on it, and it won't stick. And then there's, they're developing these infrared lights that come down and murder the bacteria, which is kind of cool too. So um, it's getting better. <laughs> That's nice. We're speaking with Hank Scott, the founder and CEO of Molan Labe, about changing airline seats and the revolutionary change in his airline seat. And, Hank, talk a little bit more, if you would, about those challenges of building the perfect airline seat. I mean, one of the issues we have is that every single person has a subjective evaluation of what they like. So we put someone in the seat and they go, ah, it's too high, it's too small. And, um, you know, one of the beauties of our product is, okay, if, this high, if, if you don't like this one, go to the one next to you. It's a different height and a different width. <laughs> but uh, there's, uh, there's a lot... To, to breaking into the industry we're really small uh fortunately for us primus aerospace is our manufacturing partner and they're based in lakewood and randy who uh, runs primus they've been building seat components for 25 years and so we kind of partnered with them because they bring the manufacturing credibility they they know the industry and they're looking at hiring a lot of people within the next couple of years uh advanced manufacturing jobs right here in colorado 
Well, that's really nice. What are some of the challenges then to that next level, as you were talking about, getting these seats approved by the FAA and then getting them into airplanes? So the FAA was actually pretty cool. Um, They kept meeting with us. They kept saying, you're doing this right. You're doing this wrong. We want to see this. Um, The guidelines are pretty straightforward. But they gave us a bit more above and beyond the, just the basics. And, and the guy, it's actually the Denver Aircraft Certification Office that certified, that signed off on the, on the seat. So we met with them on a regular basis. But it is a long process. I mean, you've got to design the seat, then you've got to build the seat, and then you've got to make sure you, it's designed to be assembled quickly and maintained quickly. I mean, if you've got a whole plane sitting on the ground because someone's got a broken armrest, you don't want a guy in there taking 15 minutes to change that armrest out. You want him to come in with one tool in 30 seconds. So we did a lot of work on what they call the, the maintainability of the seat. And it, it's just that you're always trading off one against the other. But um, the FIA was great. Uh, we didn't fail any tests. We passed every test first time around, which as a startup company was really important to us. It took a lot more time and money, though. Um, and we did hundreds of digital crash tests before we did the actual one. And the digital tests confirmed what we knew is that we would pass the actual tests, and we did. And the tests are horribly violent to watch. So if you want to Google something, Google a 16G uh, crash test. Um, it uh, makes you never want to be in a plane crash, I'll tell you that. Actually, they, they test a lot of things you wouldn't believe. Like um, you can't break your ankles on the baggage bar after the crash as your body sort of settles down. If it comes back and you break your ankles, that would be considered a fail because you can't run out of the plane. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, no, I, I I could understand that. That's why I always wear uh, some kind of covered shoe footwear when I'm on a plane, just in case I have to run out of the plane. Uh, I don't want to be doing that in flip flops. Oh yeah, on when it's on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You know, if we're landing in the Hudson, I, I want to have something on my feet. <laughs> yeah, right. In the Navy, they always told us to dr- to dress for the weather you're going to crash in, not the weather you're flying in. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> there you go. So, when can passengers test out these seats on an airplane for themselves? Uh, we believe that the first delivery will be towards the end of April next year, uh, in 2020. You also mentioned these seats can go into a 737. Well, as we've been reading, there are a few issues with some 737s out there at the moment. And being a, a pilot and all-around aviation professional, when do you think we're going to see these 737 Maxes back in the air? Um, if I was Boeing, I would get rid of that software and go back to the 737-800 series. It doesn't have a problem, but uh, th- there's reasons for what they're doing. But uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm meeting Boeing in about half an hour. Um, <laughs> I'm in Seattle right now. Um, but uh, I-, I think they're, they're working pretty hard. They're probably going to have them up in, um, in probably the end of this year. I think the airlines are going to be a bit more cautious about it, mainly because the passengers are cautious. What I do know about the 737, it's an incredibly tough aircraft. If you fly an aircraft for that long, every time something goes bad, you, you figure it out. And they've been doing it for 50 years. So it's kind of weird that they let this, this change happen. And it's, it's, it's a shame, really, that uh, it was overlooked because it's not in the Boeing nature to do that. Normally, they're pretty on point, these guys. And, yeah, I, I'd say right now, I, I have no problem getting back into a 737 at all. Let's go from talking about Boeing to talking about your startup company, because one of the things that I found most interesting was you talking about the funding that you had to procure and, you know, having that startup mentality and having to kind of scale back the uh, the seat shifting rollout because this was a more marketable product. I mean, I guess my real question is how much time, how much money have you put into this thing and how does it feel knowing that you're like a year away from actually selling it? Uh, it's it's good. I'd say it's been a long time coming. My um my uh 
my co-founder Kevin, he's um, he's been doing most of the engineering side of things, and the guy's just an animal. But we've worked for free for about six years, and then we uh, we've raised a couple of million dollars, and um, we're probably going to raise some more coming up here soon. Um, just because I, I we need to bring on, we've got we're a tiny, we're six six people, and we need a few more engineers in particular because we've got some other projects on the long haul seat. We've got projects on a disabled access seat. Um, there's, there's quite a few things going on and we could just can't address them all right now. It, it sucks. You've got all these ideas and I mean, we're unveiling an idea, uh, next April that is probably on par with this as far as, uh, what it does for the passenger and helping the passenger out. And it's, it's on our long haul seat, but it's not been done before. And we just got the pattern on it and, uh, I can't unveil it yet, but it's just a little thing, but it makes a big difference. Kind of like this, uh, this S1 seat. So you're not going to break any news here on the Driving You Crazy podcast? I could probably break <laughs> a little. I can give you a little snippet of something we're working on. We talked about that side slip seat that makes the aisle wider. We've always known that if you make the aisle wider, you could perhaps help people, what they call PRMs, people of restricted mobility. That's the industry term for people with crutches or people in wheelchairs. So instead of getting into one of those skinny little stools on wheels, you actually use your own wheelchair to go down this 42-inch wide aisle and then you're assisted into your own seat. So it's just one less step uh, for people of restricted mobility to get on a plane. We're working on a version of that that would actually allow a person to fly in their wheelchair, to not actually transfer to the airline seat. Wow. It's a big project. It'll take a while, but it's using basically the same technology, giving you more space. That's pretty remarkable. You know, I have $37 in my pocket right now. If that'll help, I could probably come up with maybe $100 more. So uh, my my some some of my some of my smart investors right now. Um, I didn't know this because you know I'm, I'm not a finance guy, but I'm not allowed to say that I I'm looking for money, or I'm not allowed to say on, on to the public that I'm looking for money because there's all these rules. And I just found out yesterday. I'm like, wait, I can't ask for money. Like I can ask for money to accredited investors, but I can't go out there and say we're doing this. So I haven't said that. <laughs> I think I haven't. <laughs> um, but. I, like, it was just a couple of days ago. He's like, no, you can't just go and tell people you need money and you're investing. I'm like, well, then I won't. We're not. I mean, I don't understand the SEC. I didn't even know what the SEC stood for until yesterday. So, um, <laughs> got to be careful there. Yeah, you thought it was a Southeast Conference football. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, just... So, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, uh, how, can they, how can they do that? How can they get a hold of your company? Um, most people come, uh, just visit the website, which is a pretty simple one to find. It's airlineseats.aero, A-E-R-O. Perfect. And uh, I guess finally, it, this seat, this revolutionary seat and all the seats that you're designing, will it maybe hopefully at least restrict people from wanting to take off their socks and shoes while they're on the airplane? Oh God, I need to work. I, I was just on a plane and a guy did that. I'm like, put your shoes back on, dude. What are you doing? See? <laughs> yeah. There's your next, there's yeah. your next brilliant idea right there. Boom. That's where my $37 is going to. All right. All right. I'll, I'll start working on that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Hank, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we appreciate it. Hank Scott, the founder and CEO of Molan Labe. Uh, we appreciate your time very much. Thanks guys. Cheers. Well, that was super exciting and super interesting stuff. No kidding, man. A little news break in here on the Driving You Crazy we podcast. We are breaking news. We love the accent. Um, Hank is super fun. <laughs> Heck of a resume, too. That background in ergonomics. We didn't get to ask him nearly enough questions about that. No, you're exactly right. Um, but he sounds like he's the perfect guy to design the perfect airline seat. 
and uh, appreciate his time. Uh, again, if you want to, it's uh, Molon Labe is his company, and he's here in Colorado, and he's designing these seats. And uh, so maybe maybe they're going to go into some Boeing seats because that's obviously who he was meeting with today when we were calling him there in Seattle. Um, that that was pretty cool. Yeah, that absolutely. was really that was super cool. Um, who knew there was really so much to know about airline seats? I mean, that's a lot of stuff. Attention to detail, man. That's the level of detail we need to get maximum comfort on every airplane trip. Well, if you want to be here on the show, just like Hank was, here's the easiest way to do it. You can call 303-832-0217, and when you do that, you can leave a message, and then you can be right here on the show with us, Jason and Joseph, on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Just leave us a message, even if you want to just hear the message, and then hang up. 303-832-0217. We'd love to have you. If you just want to make vulgar noises and then hang up, 303-832-0217. Love to have you too. Yep. If you just want to do your best southern accent, maybe your best Bostonian accent. Whatever accent you have that you think is somewhat humorous and or good, we might not even know it's a good accent because it might be so good that we don't even know it's an accent. 303-832-0217. There you go. It's out there now. Uh, we have a big show uh, planned for next week, by the way. We're going to have on the founder and creator of an app called Driveways, spelled with a Z at the end of it. I've actually been trying to get a hold of this guy for months and months and months, and finally he drops a, an email to us here in the newsroom. Hey, wh- why don't we have any coverage from the local news people about our stuff? Well, I've been trying. And I'd love to have you on my show. And so we're going to have him on the show next week. Drive Ways. Yes. Ways with a Z. A couple of guys up in Boulder who uh, came up with this app. It's pretty interesting. You're selling, basically, if you have an area where people want to park, you, they have the app, you have the space, boom, brings you together. I think it's a, it's a pretty smart idea. We'll talk to him next week all about it. Anyway, that's about it for this edition of the Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks again for you for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the traffic guy. I'm airplane comfort expert, Joseph Peters. Expert or enthusiast? Expert. (laughs) Be safe and as always, happy motoring.